This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good evening, and welcome to the Sunday Late Show. Tonight, we're going to be talking about chess in the classroom and beyond with chess writer, coach, and founder of the Chess in Schools and Communities charity, Malcolm Payne. So join us as we explore designing a chess curriculum, preparing children for competition, and your own experiences of chess in schools. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone and welcome to another Sunday Late Show from York with me, Christopher Vowles. I hope those of you who are on your Easter break have been enjoying the recent good weather and are feeling ready to meet the final challenges of moderation, revision and exams. For those of you like me who are already back at work, I trust your exam year students are feeling prepared and confident as the number of remaining lessons diminishes and that moment of exam room independence draws ever closer. I'm pleased to say that my year 13 students seem to have returned with a strong understanding of the rhyme of the ancient mariner that I've been teaching them for their English literature crime writing exam. We've also been following the progress of Albi the Albatross with interest. Don't know if you know about Albi the Albatross, but he's recently returned to the North Yorkshire coast. Incredibly, Albie is the only known wild albatross currently living in the Northern Hemisphere. It seems he was blown over the equator some years ago and now can't get back. Albatrosses usually mate for life and Albie finds himself as the sole albatross amid the noisy colonies of gannets, gulls and puffins at Bempton Cliffs. Albie's predicament seems to have given a whole new meaning to college's famous line, alone, alone all all alone, alone on a wide, wide sea. However isolated our students might be feeling as they shut themselves away to revise, they will surely never be quite so isolated as poor old Albie. Year 11 have been hard at the books too and have come back with a good knowledge of 1984, Cambridge Songs of Ourselves poetry anthology and a cure and a secure sense of how to go about dismantling an unseen poem in the exam room. They have had plenty of opportunities now to rehearse the descriptive writing, persuasive writing and analytical reading skills we have walked them through again and again for AQA's English language GCSE. The walking will now step up to a brisk jog for everyone before the brisk jog becomes a series of four minute per paragraph sprints. The run into exams is, for us at least, starting to feel much more like it used to feel. And I am certainly relieved that I won't be asked to act as unpaid examiner, chief examiner and awarding body again this year. I might even get to switch the laptop off while away on Dartmoor this summer. During the holiday, I read two excellent non-fiction books. The first, Philip Alterman's The Stasi Poetry Circle, 
tells the unlikely true story of the creative writing group set up in post-war East Germany to generate propagandist poetry under the tutelage of Uwe Berger. It becomes a surreal account of petty rivalries, existential crises and unfulfilled promise that could stand as a wider metaphor for the East German project itself. Among the many poems that Altman drags up from the dusty, forgotten pamphlets published during the writing circle's golden days, perhaps the most memorable is that penned by a young guardsman, Alexander Reuker, whose poem Workshop or Armoury asks, Now tell me, all of you, for whom do you write poems? Some build cars, others drive them. You write poems. Which of the people whose work you live off, understand them. Reuker's story is perhaps the saddest of them all, but it's one I'll let you discover for yourselves. As the GDR winds towards its accidental, wall-destroying demise, many of the poets faced the prospect of death and disgrace as a newly free populace marched upon the very buildings in which the Stasi were busy destroying the records of their other business. It's probably fair to describe the second book as something of a niche read. Dennis Duncan's Index, A History of the, presents the surprising and strange history of those few pages at the back of many books that help us locate the key information we want to find when the need is great and time is short. Duncan does a great job of highlighting the degree to which our relationship to information retrieval has changed since the advent of the internet by pointing out that the internet search engine largely fulfills the role previously occupied by the traditional concordance, a book which typically lists instances of specific words used in the works of a particular author. For example, you might want to know how many times the word grey appears in the collected works of W.B. Yeats, and a concordance would help you do that. But Duncan also points out how the printed topic index can be used for nefarious ends particularly where the writer of the index fundamentally disagrees with the content of the main text. Think, for instance, about how an indexer might pull off an effective character assassination of an overweening politician by only associating their name with the terms his vanity, his slovenliness, his inability to get on with his staff, or correspondence expressing his obvious disdain for his constituents. To read Duncan's book is to be reminded of just what an amazing work of technology the Codex book remains. As I once remember remarking to a very sceptical senior colleague, the Codex book is such a phenomenal work of technology that the technological design itself essentially disappears the longer you engage with it. For all the e-reader, Kindle, iPad and their like, they've never yet managed to achieve this end. But I have also been doing some rather different research over the Easter holidays while my daughter has been at school. I have been reading up on how to improve the quality of my chess opening play by looking up some of the more absurd chess matches of the past and exploring whether there is a space for surrealist expression in the universe of competitive chess. Certainly, there doesn't seem to be in the world of online competitive chess. Signing up for a five-minute bits game on chess.com with anyone performing to at least intermediate standard 
means that opening with anything other than a queen's pawn, king's pawn or knight's pawn opening is likely to lead to swift and disappointing disaster. I think I managed to win one game in six by opening with one of the rook's pawns, and that was essentially due to a catastrophic blunder by my opponent. More satisfyingly though, I did manage to trick one much stronger player who was playing white into gifting me a most unlikely stalemate draw as he sought to devour every single one of my pieces despite holding a 17 point advantage. So I've been reading a lot about how stalemates work, partly as a means of extricating myself from some truly catastrophic positions once castling has become an impossibility. I've been thinking too about how my daughter might continue her chess development now that she's become quite adept at using an iPad and a computer. As an only child, is she going to experience chess as a solitary pursuit like Albie the Albatrosses or as a social opportunity? How can I go about helping her to learn the game in a way that holds her enthusiasm? And is there a role that her primary school could play in helping her develop her interest in chess? Well, tonight, I'm hoping we might be able to explore answers to some of these questions and more as we think about chess in the classroom and beyond with my guest, Malcolm Payne, and with any of you who wish to call in and join the show. We will consider the place of chess in schools and communities, think about how students might make the transition from chess learning to competitive play, and then after nine o'clock, close by picking up on some of your direct experiences of chess teaching, coaching, and administration. So please do text in with your observations before we open up the phone lines. I'm just going to check if Malcolm is with us. Malcolm, if you're with us now, could you call in? That would be great. Just checking to see if we've got Malcolm with us. Malcolm, are you with us? I hope I am. Fantastic. We can hear you loud. Do your right. intro and then we'll make a start. Malcolm Payne continues to enjoy a varied and distinguished career in the world of chess at the very highest levels. An international master and former British junior champion, Malcolm has been chess correspondent for the Daily Telegraph and Sunday Telegraph for over 30 years while providing commentary on the chess exploits for the BBC, Canal Plus, CNN, and a host of other broadcasters. He was appointed manager captain of the England team in 2016, leading it to its best medal haul in more than 20 years at the 2019 World Teams Championships in Astana. Malcolm was deeply involved in setting up the groundbreaking match between Gary Kasparov and IBM's Deep Blue Chess Programme in 1997, and in establishing the London Chess Classic Tournament in 2009. He is executive editor of Chess Magazine, founder of the All Parliamentary Group on Chess, and head of the charity Chess in Schools and Communities, which he established in 2010. Welcome to the show, Malcolm, and thank you for joining us on Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you, Christopher. Good evening. Thank you for having me on the show. I hope I've painted an accurate picture of your work in chess to date, Malcolm, but is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I think you've demonstrated that I've 
failed completely to properly diversify. So no, I don't think you've missed anything out. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Shall we start by exploring the aims of chess in schools and communities then? What is the story behind this project and what need were you looking to meet? Well, it, it began in the 1980s, um, I think the late 1980s, when I, I got a call from a, a teacher in Tower Hamlets who was a little bit of a chess player and he got some children uh, of mainly Bangladeshi origin, although there were some children of Turkish origin and also uh, a smattering actually of uh, Vietnamese boat children. You may remember those from, from, from that period. And he taught them all how to play chess and they'd taken to it uh, and got to a certain level, but he couldn't take them any further. And he, he asked me if I'd come along and, and help them. And I, I was intrigued by this. So uh, I'd never heard of anyone enjoying that kind of success in in a, in, in a community such as Tower Hamlets, which at the time, I, I'm not sure how far it's advanced, um, had the worst sort of exam results pretty much in the, in the country. So I went along to help him and I found an enormous amount of enthusiasm and a lot of aptitude for chess in all of these children, very few of whom spoke any English at all. So we started our, our chess lessons by sort of communicating in what I could only describe as pseudo sign language as mm. their English became better and I, I became better at understanding them they became better at understanding me and after we were going a few months we we realized that they were so good we we entered them into competition and they just started winning everything and a couple of the children became British junior champions uh indeed one of the one of the children who I mean it sounds so stereotyped but he lived a, he lived above a chip shop um mm. in in Tower Hamlets and he, he you know he'd, he'd escaped with his family on a on a boat out of out of Vietnam uh, became British under eleven champion, as I as I recall, and he was featured on the program Magpie, which was ITV's version of Blue Peter. Uh, some some people listening might remember that, and I was astonished at the success that that that, that we enjoyed, and then also absolutely delighted when many of the children used their, their their chess skills and their chess success to get to better schools, and went on from there. And I know, you know, a couple of them ended up getting quite reasonable jobs in the city. And I thought, well, this is absolutely astonishing because one of them started as a, as a refugee in the South China Sea. Another one started as a child who lived with his family in, a, um, in an agricultural, sort of a countryside area of, of Silet, in which the, the, the family just lived around a lake. I mean, I know this because the teacher actually went there to visit them and brought back pictures. And they lived in, you know, in, in, in fairly straightened circumstances in a tower block in Tower Hamlets. But in one generation, they've gone from that to having a, a, you know, a high powered job in, in computer science in, in the city of London. I thought, well, this is fantastic. Well, chess has played its part in, in, in achieving some serious social mobility here. And unfortunately, at that point, um, Margaret Thatcher and Ken Livingstone weren't getting on very much. And um, the Inner London Education Authority was abolished and all the funding for the programme that we managed to secure disappeared. And I went on to do to do other things. But I never forgot that experience. I, it was a remarkable experience. It lasted, I guess, about two and a half years, maybe three years. And then in, in 2009, I was fortunate enough to acquire a pupil who, uh, who loved chess. And he just said, well, what can I do to help the uh, the disastrous state of chess in the UK? And I said, well, there are two things. The first one is we haven't had a proper chess tournament in this country for the best part of 25 years. And the second thing is that it's almost disappeared in schools. Because, I mean, when I was at school, every school had a chess club. But 
this conversation which took place in 2009, I discovered less than one in 10 schools knew, even knew whether they had chess sets. I mean, I'm talking about state schools here, of course, because every single private school had a thriving chess club that I contacted and, and they still do. And what so, did you put the uh, lack of chess clubs down to? Well, I, I've got my own theory. Um, it, it's, it's largely to do with uh, the education secretary in Margaret Thatcher's government. But I, I remember my mother, who taught English and, and maths at a, uh, at a comprehensive school, various comprehensive schools in Liverpool, getting extremely angry when a, um, a contract was imposed upon teachers. And um, I've I, I probably got the number completely wrong, but she's, she came into the house one, one, one afternoon after school. Um, by the way, it was terrible for me. She used to teach in my school for a while. I used to dread meeting on the corridor. And uh, she said, if he wants his 1,092 hours, he can have them and he's not getting any more. My, I mean, my, my sense of it was that a lot of, a lot of extracurricular stuff that, that teachers used to do voluntarily and with pleasure, they kind of stopped doing um, in, in, in the 80s. I mean, it didn't happen overnight. It just, certainly with chess, it just seemed to just slowly fade away. Mm. And the teachers who were keen on it you know, left the school or retired and no one else took, uh, took, took, over, the, took over the chess club. And so it was, uh, it was, it was, it was really, um, well, it, it was unusual, in fact, to, to find a chess club in a, in a state school at that point. So I resolved uh, to, to try and change it. What kind of work did that require if, if you've, if you're approaching a situation where chess has all but disappeared, it sounds like there was probably quite a lot of work involved at the early stage to rebuild that love of it. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I had to do was learn how to run a charity because I was actually just a small businessman. I was running a, a chess shop selling chess sets and things. And then I, I did this survey. I, I, I must have called hundreds and hundreds of schools around the country to try and try and get some data. And then I had to think about what the best delivery model was. And it was clear that delivering it via a charity was the most economic model. And then the question was what to deliver. And what I, what I, what I realized when I thought about it was that what, one of the problems with, with chess was that nearly all the players were boys. I mean, almost 90, 95 plus percent were boys. And I thought, well, how do I, how do I fix that for a start? And then it occurred to me that maybe chess could be delivered as a classroom subject. And so I consulted with a, with a few experts in the field and a few chess people with some, with some interest in education. And we came up with a, a curriculum that could be delivered over 30 weeks to a primary school classroom, years three, four, and five primarily, uh, and year six if, if, if the school wanted it. And we piloted it in, in a few schools. Uh, the first schools were in Newham and in Liverpool. And from there, it just actually just took off. Um, it, the, the word spread and, and I, I couldn't cope with the demand. So I, I had just a few chess teachers that I managed to, um, to attract from the chess community. And most of these chess teachers did lunchtime and after school clubs. So they were absolutely delighted to have some work in, in school time. It just, in, instead of sitting in Starbucks, they were actually working and earning money. And so the, the economic model worked quite well in that sense. So I then had to devise a training course for chess teachers uh, and start running courses and, and recruiting. And it just grew from, you know, an, an initial pilot of about five or six schools to up to the point pre-COVID a couple of years ago, we were delivering chess to 324 schools, 850 classes a week. Uh, and it, it, it was, uh, yeah, it, it, it had become far bigger than I'd ever imagined, mainly because head teachers embraced it and liked it. And how did you go about training these new chess teachers that you would need? So... Thanks to uh, one of my one of my colleagues, John Foley, who also helped with the um, with the curriculum. John 
John developed a training course and we went around the country delivering these courses. We made them free at first with the, with the charitable funds that I had, that I raised. Uh, I mean, I discovered I'm quite good at raising money. It's never something I'd ever, ever tried to do, but it was, it was such a joy to, to actually to be running a charity instead of a small business because everyone's so much nicer to you when, they, mm. when you tell them they're running a charity. And, um, managed to raise quite quite a lot of money uh, particularly from what from from the from the initial donor and then i um, started investigating the ways that charities run money by uh, 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 raise money by uh, by applying to trusts and things like this and we became big enough to employ uh, a part-time fundraiser as well which which was quite good and we went around the country doing these doing these courses and the courses would attract two two kinds of people they'd attract chess players who wanted the part-time work teaching chess and they attracted school teachers who wanted to learn how to teach chess themselves and um the, the, these started to be uh well oversubscribed so we ran more and more and more and in the end uh, we had enough teachers to to run all the schools although it's a constant battle uh, mm. even now I mean, brexit was quite damaging to us actually because a lot of our teachers went back to eastern europe or, or went to other countries like malaysia where they could uh, where where uh, they were in demand and uh, i think we're only just sort of recovering from that now if we have a think about the chess curriculum specifically in just a moment, mm. I wondered if I've not found the answer out to this question, so I, I think I probably ought to ask it. Is there any education system in the world where chess is considered a fundamental part of the taught curriculum in schools? Yeah, so so chess as a as a classroom subject is is taught in quite a few quite a few places. There are a lot of education authorities in the states who use it, but the main country that where it's compulsory is Armenia. Uh, that there is something that you can look up. I think a BBC program is called Armenia, the smartest country on earth, and uh, they have their own methods there, uh, which I don't think really work in in, in British classrooms. Uh, and they do they do achieve quite a lot, but um, and they, they generate a lot of, of quite of quite strong players. But my objective's never really been to to generate lots and lots of strong chess players. I just want children to benefit from. From the skills that chess engenders rather than turn it churning out grandmasters but to answer your question in armenia it's actually compulsory uh in hungary in hungary it's optional in turkey it's very well embedded in lots and lots of schools i said uh, lots of education uh education authorities i can't remember the exact word actually they use a different word don't they in the states uh, school boards in america mm. uh have have chess uh and uh, quite a lot goes on in south america a lot of schools in spain and the French Chess Federation have just signed an agreement with the French Ministry of Education to uh, to spread chess around around France there into primary schools. So, yeah, there there are many many countries that uh, that, that embrace chess in this way. Are there any systems where the the pupil would walk away with a qualification in chess? I'm pretty sure that the Turks have something and the Hungarians too. We we don't actually give our children any kind of, of qualification as such because there are lots of there's so much chess teaching out there generally um mm. that uh, that children if they want to take it further than than than, than our 30 weeks there are, there are plenty, loads and loads of opportunities for them to uh, to gain qualifications in chess or, or certificates of achievement if they wish to yeah it's fascinating isn't it that the range of different ways in which chess is delivered in education systems particularly when you consider that chess itself predates most of the countries in which these education systems exist Oh sure, I I, I decided you know, to, that, that that getting it in the classroom was really the way to spread it. First of all, you get equal numbers of boys and girls, and and if you think about it, I mean, I don't know what the experiences of, of of other teachers listening listening to the podcast, but but my experience almost universally is if you just have a chess club, 
And the charity is perfectly happy. If the head teacher just wants to have a chess club and doesn't want to have classroom lessons, that's fine, we'll do it. But usually, although it's happening less and less now, thanks to the Queen's Gambit, which has been had a wonderful effect, the, the Netflix series. But formally, if you, if you announced there was going to be a chess club at half past three on Thursday afternoons, 27 boys would turn up, three girls, and two of those girls wouldn't fancy being with 27 boys. And uh, you'd, you'd get a completely sort of uh, boy-dominated uh, uh, club. That, that's happening a little less now, um, although she's a, a slightly strange role model, Beth Harmon, the character, the main character in The Queen's Gambit. Uh, what, what she has done is broken down this stereotype that girls don't play chess, that chess isn't for girls. And that's been incredibly helpful for us as a charity. I think I think you're right. I think that we, we see it in our own school. We have perhaps more female chess players now in our Kisei 3 chess club than we, we thought we would get in an ordinary year. Have you given particular consideration when you're designing your chess curriculum to how you might involve girls in the experience? No. The, the short and simple answer to that is no. Uh, it, it's up to the to the individual tutor to make sure that, and, and hopefully the class teacher working with them or classroom assistant, to make sure that the girls are engaged as much as the boys. So no, the, the, we, did, we didn't give any thought to that at all. Our main, our main focus was making sure that we had as many girls as possible participating and take it from there. Thank you. And if we think about the chess curriculum itself, how does that unfold over the 30 lessons? I think it's for key stage three, uh, sorry, key stage two, year three <laughs> yes. to five, isn't it? Five, designed yes. it? That's right. So it starts by, it's by, by it just goes piece by piece. Uh, first, you discuss the, the, the chess board. Uh, children learn all about coordinates if they don't already know them. Or All, all children in chess and communities uh, schemes are very, uh, very fluent in, co- in coordinates. And then we start really just with the pawn and we, we have this lovely, lovely game which is called the pawn game in which each team each side I should say has eight pawns and the object is to get a pawn to the other end of the board and make a queen and that's the way of introducing the pawn and then we just take it piece by piece until in the end they know how all the pieces work and then we'll teach them so obviously how they how the pieces capture and then once they're sort of fluent in how all the chess pieces move, then we'll deal with the difficult subject of how you actually win a game. And that's by checkmating your opponent's king. And that comes sort of usually towards the end of the first term of 10 or 12 weeks or early in the second term. It just depends how the class is progressing. But the nice thing is that most classes that, that I visit and also the feedback I get from tutors is that after about 15 weeks, children are playing a game that looks pretty much like chess. And it does uh, belie its reputation of being a difficult game. It's actually a really easy game for children to learn. It's just like anything else, chess. It's it's quite difficult to become really, really good at it. Mm. Yeah, certainly my daughter picked up the basics fairly quickly and she enjoyed it. Do the children have any particular questions about specific pieces that tend to recur? I mean, there's always people that... A lot of children might struggle with the knight a little bit more than any other piece because it, it moves in two different directions. And so there are various ways of, of trying to help them understand that, one of which is hippity-hippity-hop. <laughs> There's a way to describe the move of the knight, hippity-hippity-hop. That, 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 usually, that usually works. So um, the, the fact that the knight can also jump over pieces is some, sometimes uh, children want to know why. Why can the knight jump over pieces but nothing else? And the answer is, well, because it's a horse. So uh, you can usually bat that away fairly easily. Yeah. 
Brilliant. How about the pawn? This this idea that the, the weakest piece on the board can suddenly transform itself into the strongest piece on the board. Sure, it's a it's 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 a, it's a wonderful metaphor. I mean, I I was actually staggered. I mean, one one of the some of the classes uh, are, are really getting quite advanced. I mean, I went to a school uh, not so long ago where the children were learning actually that in some cases, when you get your pawn to the end of the board choosing a queen as the new piece is actually a mistake. Sometimes you should actually choose a rook or a bishop or a knight. I mean, this happens very, very rarely. But that is also quite a nice concept to, to, to get across, that the obvious move sometimes isn't always the best. Uh, but, but children don't tend to have any difficulty. I mean, in fact, what they really, they really like the idea. You know, get a poor, I've got a new queen, that's fantastic. That's always, you know, that's always a time for celebration, isn't it, when you get a pawn to the end of the board? Yeah, particularly if you have to... Uh turn one of your rooks upside down to make it into a queen. <laughs> ah, now we got across that problem, actually. After the third year, we discovered we were running short of queens. So now I only import pieces that have two queens in the set. So every set comes with a second queen. Brilliant. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's, there's certainly that. That's one of the, the questions that, for instance, my daughter asked me, how, how the pawn moves to become you know, a queen by the end of the board. And mm. we, we talk about, you know, well, it's done a good job to get all the way down to the end of the board without being taken. So it deserves a reward. The other question, I suppose, is why the king is never captured. Yeah, uh, I think this is, it's, it's interesting that these questions that you're, you're mentioning, at the, at, the start of, uh, at the start of the charity's life, we did do some work in year two classrooms. And we found that some children in year two struggled with these with these concepts that we've just discussed, particularly checkmate, which is mm. abstract, you might say. And it, in fact, it was from that reason, for that reason, more or less by trial and error, that we decided that uh, we <laughs> we concentrate on years three, four, and five, where the children don't have any trouble really with these ideas. And how do they get used to the concept of stalemates? That comes quite late in your teaching sequence, doesn't it? It does. I mean, that, that that's that's quite a hard thing. The interesting, the interesting point I, I should mention actually is that most of our classes get through these weeks earlier than than we'd actually planned. I mean, well, I'll I'll often visit a school and find that they're only into sort of week twelve of the of the delivery, but they're already doing week sixteen of the curriculum. Um, and stalemate is stalemate's a difficult idea, but it can be taught. I mean, by by use of lots of different lots and lots of different examples, and um, in fact, if there's one way to embed stalemate, although this doesn't always work in the classroom, but if there's one way to embed stalemate, you know, I, I remember absolutely clearly, I mean, I can visualise where I am. I'm, I'm in Paddington Comprehensive School in Liverpool. I'm in the last row of this enormous hall, which had enormous glass windows, and I'm playing Philip Eames, and I've got a queen against his lone king, and I've just got distracted and I've just stalemated him. And I can see that now, you know, that, that never left me. It scarred me, <laughs> actually, in a funny way. <laughs> I think once you've blundered into a stalemate, you never, you never forget it and you never let it happen again. Yeah, I, I certainly think whenever I used to play as a, as a schoolboy, I mean, I was, I was not a brilliant chess player, but I, I was interested in the game. I always made sure if I was down to just a king and a few pieces as my opponent I always promoted to a rook 
I was never going to promote and have two <laughs> queens on the board just because just in case you, you know, if you're playing really really quickly in short time to work yes. out all the positions as a yeah as an 11 year old is is tough yeah i mean the, so the, the way we teach stalemate is is really through practice so it'll be giving examples of this is queen and king against king there are four different moves that deliver checkmate but which one delivers stalemate and the children figure that out and we've talked about this experience at key stage two as you move through the key stages how does your education program push those key stage three and key stage four students on to taking their chess further well we we do i'd say 90 plus percent of our of our classes are are, are key stage two so i mean certainly most key stage three and key stage four children that we come across know how to play chess um and so we tend to, certainly in secondary schools, deliver clubs or we have actually a huge online club on a wonderful site called Lee Chess, L-I Chess, which is actually a charity as well. Uh, it's an, a not-for-profit uh, based in France. It has the most fantastic interface and it enables you to run a chess club. You can run a chess club online by using Skype and Lee Chess or you can run it face-to-face -face and the children can, you can run a chess tournament on, on Lee Chess for lots and lots of children in lots and lots of schools at the same time. So we tend not to be teaching too much uh, in Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4. I'm glad you brought up the topic of competitions, actually. Are there mm. any particular ways that teachers or chess coaches can help prepare children for making that transition from classroom yes. learning to competitive play? Absolutely. There's a, there's a wonderful, wonderful competition uh, that actually is, I think, the biggest competition in the world. It certainly was when it had over 50,000 children in it. Nowadays, it, I think it's in the 30,000s. It's called the Delancey UK Chess Challenge. And children can enter from little more than a, a pound each. Like the school buys a pack for about 25, 30 pounds. And this pack arrives and it has all the instructions for a teacher. A teacher doesn't even know, need to know how to play chess, but it has all the instructions, has lots of stickers for the children, lots of rewards. And it has a, a competition structure and the children just play amongst themselves and the best uh, players at each uh, year group go through to a local area final. And there they, 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 get, uh, they get their first taste of, of real competition. So if you like, they have this soft introduction to competition within the classroom and then the, the most able players then go on and play against the best players from other schools. Uh, in, in what are called these mega finals, and they have between 35 and 50 of them around the country every year. And if you get through the mega final, you get to the Geiger final, and usually there are two or three of those, a north, a south, and, 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 and one in the Midlands. And if you're really, really strong player and get through the Geiger final, you, you end up in the Terra final. And in the old days, uh, before the competition came under its most recent owners, uh, children were mixed so seven-year-olds could play 18-year-olds mm -hmm. and um i remember once my son got through to the to the terror final and played he was seven i think and he was playing a child who was 17 and had a beard and Gosh. uh he came to me and said dad i think it is the terror final <laughs> <laughs> it was like, but nowadays they nowadays i think they split the they split the age groups but so there's this soft introduction in the classroom to competition uh, and also the teacher can moderate it in uh, as well and make sure that it's, you know, that it's smooth. And, and that's actually something I should emphasize that we 
we push very strongly the idea that before every game of chess, there's a handshake. And at mm. the end of every game of chess, there's a handshake. And that losing a game of chess is just a way to learn. And that one should never really gloat about a, about a victory. So the, the sporting behavior aspect of, of a game of chess is very, very important to us. And all of our teachers uh, emphasize that. It's a crucial idea, really, isn't it? Because the winner and the loser can only be determined through that act of collaboration at the board. Yes, yes. It's a, a game of chess is almost an exchange of energy, <laughs> mm. in a way. And if you think back to your own experience of moving through the competitive chess system, how do you think we're set up now? Well, th there was this massive decay in 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 British chess. Uh, there was a there was a fantastic boom after the the match between Bobby Fischer the mercurial american and the, and the and the soviet boris spassky at reykjavik in 1972 that generated an enormous chess boom and we had lots of new grandmasters in this country lots of players started playing professionally and then as i said in the 80s it started going steadily downhill and in fact i guess it, in, uh, english chess was still doing pretty well in the 80s but in the 90s the school competition scene really did uh really did diminish and until this this great competition, the Delancey came back. I'd, I'd say that we're quite well placed now. There are several organisations offering competitions. I think the difficulty is, and this is where the charity tries to help as much as it can, is it chess is like anything. That if you've got keen parents with a car and enough money to take you to competitions on the weekend, then you'll be able to participate. Mm -hmm. If you don't have if you don't come from a middle class or better family with, with with a car and a spare parent on the weekend, well, then these competitions will be denied to you. And so what we do in the charity is that our, our very best schools, we actually support to get to the competitions. I, for example, we had a school in, in Liverpool called uh, Sacred Heart Primary School in a an area called uh, Kensington, which is not remotely like the Kensington most people would be familiar with. And they got through to the national finals uh, which were held at a, uh, at, at, at a private school and they had to stay over. And so the charity had to had to fund some of that and the school didn't have a trainer. Oh, one of the schools, I think it was St. Paul's, had the British champion helping them. Mm. So I, I went along and trained our children who did extremely well and beat beats, uh, one, one, uh, one private school, drew with another school and, and, and generally performed extremely well despite the fact that a couple of our best players couldn't come. And most recently, uh, our children uh, defeated all private schools in a in a competition in Essex, and it, it's quite common. I mean, this is one of the one of the great things is seeing children from state schools competing on a level playing field and defeating children who've had the benefit of a lot more a lot more coaching and a lot more help. It certainly seems to be a leveler in that respect. Yes, completely. I mean, it, it really is a wonderful thing. I've never even been kind of uh, feature films made about it as well. I think Knights of the South Bronx was one with, uh, I can't remember the, the main actor, uh, but there, there are quite a few films that have been made uh, uh, about this because it, it, really, it really is the case. Uh, there, there was a, a fantastic school, a middle school in America, an intermediate school, IS318 uh, from New York City. Uh, and there's a, a, lovely, um, a lovely documentary you can look up online I wish I could remember the name of it, but uh, maybe my colleagues who I think are on the pod might might be able to look it up while I'm speaking. Um, something Castle, Brooklyn Castle, I think it's called. A fantastic, and, and and this shows the 
uh, the, the teacher teaching the children chess. A lot, of, a lot of the children are from immigrant families and they go to the national championships and they win and they beat schools like Dalton. <laughs> it was uh, this very posh private school in, in, in New York City. And, and this is what chess can do. And I, I think it, it gives children the most incredible opportunities. But most of all, it gives them, it gives them confidence and resilience, I think, uh, the ones that, that, that take it a little bit further. Brilliant. And if we're thinking about particularly London, the London chess scene seems to be mm. particularly active in schools. How does this chess classic work in sustaining that enthusiasm in our capital city? Right. So actually, I'm very keen. I mean, maybe it's because I'm from Liverpool. I don't know. It's where I'm talking from, by the way. I've just been at Anfield for the derby. Um, but but I'm very keen that the charity be a national charity. And although the tournament's in London, we fund the travel expenses for children from all around the country. So the uh, the profile of the children is, is typically about one third from London and, and two thirds from outside London. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the classic, though, I guess it's it's held in London <laughs> mainly because our sponsors are actually are, are, are live in London, but also because we we have as its as one of its components a really top flight grandmaster tournament, and we like to we like to have uh, a theatre full of spectators when we run that, and London's the best place to to to, to achieve that. And so the, the classic is 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 multifaceted. It has uh, four hundred to five hundred children coming every day from all over the country, and they get a. Uh, they get some chess lessons. They get they play in a simultaneous. This is one of the lovely things about chess that you can't really do in in most other sports. But one uh, player, one master player, can take on thirty players at the same time. So they get to play a master strength player, and then they get to play on the same chess boards as the grandmasters uh, who play later in the day. And then they have their own tournament, and uh, it's it's the most fantastic day out for children. Uh, every school that comes to it desperately wants to come back afterwards and it's always two to three times oversubscribed. Uh, that's one of the biggest challenges actually is trying to trying to expand the London Chess Classic to, 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 to fill the demand uh, for the school's events. In addition to the school events, we have an amateur chess festival that uh, is for all, I suppose you would call these people the club players, the people who typically might go to a chess club or play in a league. So there are lots of events for them. And then there's a world-class grandmaster tournament. Where we've had the world champion Magnus Carlsen uh, play in our tournaments as well as previous world champions Vladimir Kramnik and Vichy Anand. And chess players are very approachable, so the children get to meet them, which is also a great thrill for them. Uh, How do the students respond to watching these grandmasters in the audience? What do they think of chess as a spectator spectacle? Well, so what we do is we, we, we have them in the auditorium twice. So once they'll be in the auditorium watching their their uh, their school friends playing on the stage against uh, children from other schools. And when they do that, we encourage them to shout and scream their encouragement as much as they like. And so that, that's chess as you've never seen it, like chess mm-hmm. and an absolutely colossal din. And then uh, at the beginning of the Grandmaster tournament, the children come in and watch about 10 minutes in complete silence. And then they go off and have their tournament. And then you'll see four to 500 children in a large hall in absolute silence, all completely focused on the games. And I think the children do enjoy uh, watching it. We always uh, have um, three children up to make the ceremonial first move. So children who've done particularly well in their chess in schools and communities classes during the year, if they if they get to the London Chess Classic, they'll be selected to come on and make the first move for, say, Magnus Carlsen on the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, of course, we can always retract the move if it's uh, suboptimal. So we don't, have, we don't have any problems that way. What do they typically go for? Well... Usually they're quite good players, so they'll usually choose 
pawn in front of the king goes forward two squares, or what we would call in chess notation e4. But one time uh, a child came up and he was playing the the ceremonial first move for Hikaru Nakamura, who's one of the top American players and has over a million people uh, following him on Twitch nowadays. He's become a super successful streamer. And uh, our child played H4, a move with the rook's pawn that you alluded to in your introduction. Yeah. <laughs> that raised some eyebrows. <laughs> uh, but we, we took it back and uh, he started over. That was retracted. Yes, absolutely. Gosh. Well, that would be a terrible move. It would be, but it'd be worth the experiment, wouldn't it? Yeah, funnily enough, actually, um, Carlson played a very silly move uh, in a tournament online a couple of days ago against uh, Jan Krzysztof Duda of Poland, who's in, uh, a world's top 10 player. He played pawn in front of the bishop that's next to the king forward one square, pawn to f3, which is an absolutely ridiculous move. But, you know, uh, the, the worst thing that can happen if you're white is you end up playing as if you're black, you know, if you completely waste a move. Uh, you, there's, a, there's a limit to how much damage you can actually do unless you, you follow up with a second disastrous pawn move and get yourself checkmated. It is possible to lose in two moves in chess. Mm. I once remember, again, this is going right back to my middle school days, playing a, a a joke game against one of my friends and we agreed not to take any pieces for like the first, I don't know, 25 moves or something. And we literally just spent the game moving all of our pieces from the starting position to the starting position again, but two squares up the board. Now, that's funny because a couple of p friends of mine who didn't want to play each other once did exactly the same thing at the British Under-21 Championships. At, I think it was Brighton in something like 1977. And uh, the arbiter defaulted both of them and gave them both zero for bringing the game into disrepute, which <laughs> really? I thought was a bit mean. <laughs> Uh, have they agreed not to take pieces beforehand? Yeah, they they just agreed to move all their pawns to the centre of the board, then shake hands and go to the pub, I think, was the plan. Yeah. Uh, right, OK. Well, yeah. I, I can see how that might be slightly disreputable. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it's been great discussing these, these first two discussion points. I think we've got quite a lot of people on the broadcast tonight, so I'm hoping some will call in after the news, Malcolm. OK. And we can see what their experience has been in the classroom. So... I'm going to play the news now, and then we'll pick up your experiences in the classroom teaching chess. So please do call us, and I'll put you through as quickly as I can. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development 
every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure that Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Multiple media outlets report on comments made by Education Secretary Nadim Zahawi in a Times Radio interview. In the interview, Mr Zahawi dismissed calls to ban smacking of children by parents in England. In Wales, following the introduction of the Children, Abolition of Defence of Reasonable Punishment Act, parents who tap a toddler on the behind risk arrest and a criminal record. Children's Commissioner Rachel D'Souza expressed admiration for the ban in Wales and stated she would be supportive if the government in England decided to do the same. In response to Dame Rachel's comments, Mr Zahawi told Times Radio, My very strong view is that actually we have got to trust parents on this and parents being able to discipline their children is something that they should be entitled to do. He went on to outline how his wife had occasionally disciplined their nine-year-old daughter with a light smack on the arm. While some groups have come out in support of what they call the Education Secretary's common sense approach, others have condemned his comments as out of touch. Earlier this week, Mr Zahawi also sparked discussion following comments reported in The Telegraph, which outlined his views that schools have a duty to inform parents if their child identifies as transgender. The comments prompted a wealth of concerns about the safeguarding implications of such an act. His comments on smacking are likely to lead to similar concerns. Following last month's publication of the Safeguarding Report on the case of Child Q, a number of local authorities have received Freedom of Information requests for details on strip searches carried out in their area. Data is being requested following the release of details about the searching of Child Q, who was taken out of an exam and strip search by two female officers while teachers waited outside. The Now Then magazine for Sheffield reports that South Yorkshire Police have received FOI requests as a result of the Child Q case. The case raised a number of questions around safeguarding, duty of care and the treatment of young people of colour by both police and schools. 
In the Channel Islands of Jersey, mask wearing and the need to work in classroom bubbles will be scrapped from Monday the 25th of April, according to ITV News. Government data suggests there has been a decrease in the number of cases on Ireland. However, there is also a warning that measures could return if the cases escalate. Other measures such as enhanced hygiene and increased ventilation will remain in place. In Africa, the news website This Day reports on the launch of the Africa Education Medal, which recognises the work of educators in transforming education across the continent. It is aimed at telling the stories of those who have lit the spark of change and is open to all individuals working to improve the sector from pre-kindergarten to university education. The medal is launched by T4 Education in collaboration with HP and Intel. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to look at technology and supporting us getting lunch. Why? Because I asked every teacher I met last week if they had lunch regularly, and most of them said no. The reason being, they're too busy most days. Now, right off the bat, I'm not going to discuss any types of diet. This is just about getting lunch. Simple ways to get calories in to power the body. As always, I've tested these things out for you and added my humble opinion. First, I'm at zero extra cost using the technology of the freezer. You can freeze a sandwich. I quite like this idea as it stopped me eating a sandwich in the car on the way to a school. If I know a sandwich is there, it calls to me. Calls to me. Calls. It being frozen meant a hat to wait. The downside is making the sandwich. However, throwing 10 slices of bread down, adding filling and then into a Ziploc bag would be quite easy on a Sunday evening. You might need quite a bit of space in your freezer though. Next, I used the trusty thermos mug and noodles. I thought it was a good idea, but unlike a sandwich that you can eat on the go, I needed a fork and then had to consider not dripping it on my tie, so I actually had to stop and eat. So not as simple as a frozen sandwich, but I did have a hot lunch. Now hold on to your hats. I tried this again. I did enjoy a hot lunch, so I smashed the noodles up before I put the water in the second time around. That day, I drank my lunch. No need to find a fork, lid off, quick swig of noodles, genius. The downside I can see is washing the mug. I know I'll find it on the draining board waiting to be washed when I want to get out the door. Finally, I tried a snack bar. You can get these quite cheap online and you can find them to match most dietary needs. It was definitely the easiest option, but would be the most expensive over time. For me, it didn't feel as lunch-like, if I was being totally honest, but it did the job of rapid calorie input on the go. So, in conclusion, if you're not having lunch, why not try one of these ideas? You will definitely feel better for it. P.S. I googled International Lunch Day and it actually exists. However, it's on the 10th of March, so we've missed it. Gutted. As always, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. Tell us what you have for your lunch. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. I'm discussing chess in schools and competition with chess expert Malcolm Payne. And we would like to hear from you now. How does chess teaching and coaching work in your school? How do you enthuse the next generation of chess players? And what advice do you have for those who are looking to set up a chess education program in their schools? Call us now and share your thoughts this evening. It's great to see Harry here and Natasha here and Roger's history here and SRD here online. So I'm going to hear from Natasha first. Natasha, good evening. Good evening. Hello. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for joining the show. What would you like to say about your experience of teaching chess in schools? 
Um, well, it's, it's been quite some time now. It was interesting hearing Malcolm speak of our, the very beginning of the of CSC with its inception. And um, I, I was in with CSC quite early on. Um, so I have worked with them for a number of years, teaching across several schools, um, listening to your discussion. Uh, can I just say, first of all, it was really lovely to hear about your experience with your daughter. May I ask how old she is? She's seven next week. Oh, how lovely. So she's enjoying learning chess with you, I assume? She is, yep. We've got the wooden board out and we've got the uh, iPad chess apps to play around with. And um, she quite likes moving the wooden pieces, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because when I first began um, teaching with CSC, um, I mean, one of the things that I think I really value about working for CSC is, as Malcolm's already mentioned, um, is how we do whole class teaching because as has already been um, brought up uh, with chess clubs you do tend to get that gender bias and also to an extent there is also an element of um, the children might um, come from uh, perhaps more privileged socioeconomic backgrounds um, one of the things that's really good about working for CSC is that you're teaching a whole class of 30 um, children who, who for whom you know, the experience of chess, you know, they might never have had that experience without um, CSE's involvement in that school. Um, so you often get children who would never otherwise have experienced chess, having chess lessons, and they really take to it. And one of the first things I can remember when I was going in, because it is, of course, quite different from teaching a chess club um, when you're teaching whole class, um, you know, whole class teaching. How does um, it differ? Um, in the sense that I suppose um, perhaps it's more in, in your initial um, perceptions, perhaps, um, you know, in terms of actually teaching chess, it's pretty much the same, uh, except that, of course, you have to cater a little bit more for mixed ability. Um, you know, you might have children with special educational needs. Um, so there is a little bit of flexibility and adaptability required. Um, but in other respects, of course, the teaching the teaching of the chess material itself, the curriculum is exactly the same. Um, but my initial apprehension on uh, at teaching a class of 30 was, you know, <gasps> this generation now with all their iPads and Nintendos and... I've lost you there, Natasha. Are you still there? I can't hear you, Natasha. That's a shame. I'll go to Malcolm. So this, this sense of the physical chess pieces, Malcolm, as being mm. important in the experience. Yeah, I, I, it, it's, it's funny that a lot of top players now don't, don't play with pieces very much, except when they're in competition and do all of their studying on the computer. But I think that, that certainly children react well when playing against each other face to face on a real chessboard. Uh, I, th I think that they, I think that they learn more. They can exchange more information that way than than just playing each other online. Um, I think. Can I see Natasha back, uh, Christopher? Is because I can see her. Uh, yes, picture. I'm trying now. Natasha, are you there? Yes, I am. Sorry, I'm yeah. not quite sure what happened there. Can Sorry, you, your can microphone you cuts out for a moment there. Yeah, we can hear you clearly okay. now. Yes. So you were Sorry, saying about um, this this nature, this notion of the the moving of the physical pieces was being yeah, important. Yeah, because. Students. 
a lot of us now think you know oh this is a very electronic generation but children by nature they love acquisition and so when they have you know when they've captured pieces they love having a little treasure <laughs> trove a hoard of pieces they, they enjoy the physicality of the board and so mm. definitely it still competes with you know and, and of course it, it both are happening at the same time because I will often have children come up to me and say, oh, I've I've installed a, a chess game on my iPad and, you know, I've been playing it and now I'm up to level whatever and they're excited about it. So, but but the physical board itself still holds its own, um, you know, besides obviously there are, there is now a lot of technology available too. Yeah, certainly I was posing the question at the start of the show as to whether chess is a solitary pursuit or a collaborative pursuit which way do you go on that one i well i think in in truth it's both isn't it i think if you Mm. want to get really serious about chess then you know you need to put a lot of hours of study in and so you could argue in a way that that is solitary um but if you walk into a classroom of children playing chess, particularly primary school level, um, I mean, there are mixed views on this because um, obviously when they play chess, you want them to have focus and concentration. And it is one of the things that I think um, chess gives them um, is that ability to focus and concentrate and be quiet. Um, and certainly when I run class competitions in class, uh, that, that competitive spirit comes out and the classroom becomes very hushed. But in the early stages, when you're teaching them how the pieces move, etc., cetera, um, and I, I'm sure you with a teaching background would be you know, fully switched on and aware of a lot of the modern theories of teaching about um, peer-to-peer learning, so, um, you know, you can walk into a chess classroom when they're first learning how the pieces move and, and it can be a little bit noisy, you know, I don't like it to get too noisy, but, you know, the children are exchanging ideas. There's a lot of collaboration going on. Mm. Um, you will hear children saying, you know, oh, but, you know, if you do that, I, I can take it, you know, you will, this yeah, collaboration that. does go on. Um, you will yeah, hear you don't children, want to make that move because you're going to lose that queen straight away. Yeah, exactly. Particularly when they're friends, you know, they, they want to help each other. Um, and also um, they will be explaining concepts to each other as well you might have one child who hasn't you know you mentioned stalemate this is one of the trickier elements of the game to get across and um, one child might be explaining to another why this position is stalemate and um, so yeah there's a lot of um, exchange communication going on Um, and as Malcolm mentioned earlier about we always make sure that from day one from the very first lesson that that spirit of sportsmanship is 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 crucial I mean personally myself uh, I recently you know I I brought in you know the children had been I could see I heard children talk about the World Cup. So we talked about how footballers always shake hands at the beginning of the game. You play the anthems, etc. This is sportsmanship. And and I drew to their attention that chess is, is doubly it's doubly valued in chess because we shake hands at the end of the game as well. And that's mm. even written into the rules, the FIDE rules. So sportsmanship is really important to us. And I think if you this is one of the things that I think is interesting because I think chess might be thought of as, you know, this solitary game and not, not particularly seen as a social game. Um, but actually, I think paradoxically, it's very good at, um, you know, encouraging sort of social skills and that this ability to um, 
to be able to win graciously and to take a loss. Um, you know, when a child loses, they're learning, you know, sort of to be resilient. And um, it's resilience in their character. It's, it's a really important lesson in life, really. Um, and so, yeah, I would argue that there's there's a lot. It's, I, I think to say it's just a solitary game is not true. And even at the top level, uh, they might put in a lot of solitary hours study, but at the top level, they still work in teams. You know, so mm, the um, mm. world champion will have a team of people behind him. They're all collaborating, working together. So, um, so yeah, I would say, you know, perhaps contrary to what some people might think of as a stereotype of chess as a solitary game, I would say no. I think there's a Can lot I put of that one to Malcolm? Happens. Of course, yeah. Malcolm, how does how does chess work in the team context? You're able to explain that for our listeners. Sure, uh, I'll just say that we designed the curriculum to 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 promote collaboration between children by ensuring that they practice a lot of the concepts in pairs. So we we really do encourage them to work together, and there is this exchange of ideas. But chess is a team sport. Yeah, chess is a again is unusual in that it, it can be an individual sport and a, and a team sport and so chess as a team sport has its own very interesting dynamic I found I've sort of learned on the job as England team captain that for example in England matches it's you they're usually over four boards so it's the the team that scores the most points over four head-to-head matches and one of the worst things that can happen is if you lose one game quickly or one of your players has a very, very bad position and looks like he's losing, because the other three will then often try and overcompensate, <laughs> not play the, the kind of chess they were planning on playing. Um, and, and this can make the, the match go, well, go to hell, actually. I remember in my, my first time out, uh, I think it was at, at Baku, uh, the Baku Chess Olympiad, where all the countries play each other. One of the Dutch uh, players had, had a, a special idea prepared for him by their Ukrainian trainer, um, Vladimir took Markov and uh, he he revealed this idea and uh, our player Gwen Jones was soon in a bit of a mess and both the players on either side of him both England players then played far too aggressively to try and win and level the score and ended up both losing and we got absolutely hammered in the match but the, the best kind of thing is is really it's all about collaboration is we'll have a team meeting beforehand and we'll say well we've got white on board number one, black on two, white on three, black on four. Has anyone got any particular ideas from their preparation they might want to discuss and and possibly uh, play tomorrow? And we'll come up with an idea that that possibly one one of the players will say, well, yeah, I've been looking at this and I think I'm going to play this chap in advance. And so I'm going to go for it with this idea. And then you'll see the rest of the team just watching him do it and you know, if, if 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 your player reveals his idea, it works and he gets a winning position, you'll then see the other three just trying to close the match down in a perfect in a perfect scenario by trying to draw their games or at least take very few risks. And so it's it's very collaborative and, and it and it has a completely different dynamic and people play somewhat differently according to how the match is going or what the plan for the match is. Yeah, that reveals a whole different different layer to that sense of teamwork. Natasha, is that something you see in your classrooms to a lesser degree or is 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 it more a case of the children are working together to help each other at the board as opponents? I do sometimes uh, want a treat that they kind of enjoy at the end of term for a bit of fun is we do split the class into teams. I think they really enjoy that. I mean, of course, um, the, the level that Malcolm's talking about 
about is is a, is you know this is the top echelons of chess. We're talking about primary school children, but yeah, they certainly they will share ideas with each other, and 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 so that element of collaboration is just as valid, I think, in um, you know in in children learning chess as well. It happens just the same. They they will teach each other. Uh, for example. I had um, a lesson just the other day, uh, it was on Friday, and um, I was teaching them how to mate with two rooks, and I have a girl there who's, who's very able, uh, she she's, loves chess, and uh, is very keen, and um, she was, I could hear her helping one of the uh, other children who, who was struggling to get the concept, and she'd gone over and was helping them, and so yeah, I think they, they do share ideas, there's a lot of peer-to-peer learning that happens, they share ideas and collaborate, yes. And how about your journey into becoming a chess teacher, Natasha? How did that develop for you? Um, we're talking a long time ago now. Um, I think I was volunteering in uh, a chess club in a CSE school. I think I, I'm just trying to remember now, I think I met Malcolm, uh, uh, something was going on, and I met Malcolm along with uh, a friend from my local chess club, um, Luke, and um and then I went to London, did one of the training days, and so I was. I've been working with CSC for quite some time, um, and I think it's it's wonderful. Malcolm was talking earlier about the London Chess Classic. You really have to see that. It is the most amazing event. Um, speaking of my own entry into CSC, I think the very first training day I attended um, was in London, but at the time of the London Chess Classic which is a major event in the chess calendar for top, you know, there are top players who come to play in it. And that particular year, Magnus Carlsen, the world chess champion, was there, um, as was Judith Polgar, who's a personal heroine of mine. So um, so when I was young, she was in the top 10 in the world, and I kind of thought she was a bit of a role model. Um, and it was amazing to see the excitement of the children who, when they do enter the auditorium, you know, they are conscious that these are top players playing. There is a hush and a silence and, and they they get that atmosphere. They soak it up and they have that. I think they come away quite awestruck and it's really inspirational. And um, so, yeah, that's I suppose that's my that that's my early memory of um, CSE, a very, very very positive one. Um, I was very so fortunate you, to attend that. You mentioned you were playing in your chess club. So are you one of the people that's come to this as a chess player who's come into schools or were you, are you already also involved in teaching more generally? No, I'm, I'm, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a teacher, no. And how does that work then being given 30 children to train <laughs> as it were well i do i do i do have children myself so that i i know i'd already taught them how to play but of course teaching in class 30 is a very different thing um to be honest i think actually um i think that the ability to relate well with children to communicate ideas in a way that makes just interesting to them and um I think I suppose as in any teaching subject, whether it be maths or English or history, I think the main quality you need as a teacher is not necessarily to be the top mathematician in the country, but that ability to teach and impart knowledge and um, share your enthusiasm for your subject with your pupils. I think that's the most important quality, I think. And how do you deal with the issue of mistakes? Because for me as an English teacher... That's a big deal. How you coach children <laughs> yeah. out of mistakes. 
Um, yeah, okay. If we're talking mistakes, um, I, I don't know how you'd, what kind of analogy you would use in terms of English for when you see two bishops that are both on the same colored diagonal. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, what would you equate that to? It's uh, a split infinitive or something. Oh, so, that's um, a lack of full stops, that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you do occasionally, especially primary school level, um, the bishop is a piece that just somehow can slip off his tracks and you end up with, you know, two bishops of the same color, both on the same diagonal. Um, so, yeah, I think obviously you, you have to have an awareness and patience is important, you know. Um, so while, of course, we have had amazing success stories, um, the, the school in Liverpool that Malcolm's talking about at the beginning of the show, I mean, that was tremendous. We had, you know, pupils go through and try out for the England squad and everything. Um, but at the same time, you know, you have children who are complete beginners and they do make mistakes. There are some of them are just little year threes and stuff. So, yeah, patience is important. And, um, and also, I think that they have patience with each other. And again, this links into that kind of idea of social skills. <clears throat> because one of the things I'm very strict about is we do not snatch pieces because obviously children, especially if they enjoy the game and if they have a bit of a competitive streak, can be inclined when their partner makes a mistake to immediately sort of, uh, you know, go a bit ballistic, shall we say. So I think one of the first things I do is establish ground rules that you that all of us, when we are learning something new, and that includes grown-ups too, we all make mistakes when we're learning something. And so if your partner makes a mistake, uh, we don't say you're cheating, we don't snatch their pieces, we, we say, excuse me, I think you've made a mistake, and you put your hand up and I'll come over and, and deal with it. So I think it's really important to set that kind of ground rule at the beginning that they are tolerant of each other's mistakes. Yeah, so there's certainly this sense of learning through mistakes is quite important. And I think we've got Harry on the line now, also Natasha, who's one of these teachers who's also engaged in teaching chess at certainly the primary school level. Harry, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, Christopher. And did you have anything you'd like to say about your experience of teaching chess in the classroom? I think you've had quite a busy chess-filled day today. Yes, I have. Um, I just want to say I've agreed um, on a lot of what Natasha said about the social aspect, the focus, being resilient and co coping with a win, a win and a loss. So all of that is so important. Um, but yeah, today was quite a, a busy day. Um, I did a a seminar a maths and chess seminar for chess plus which do a lot of chess courses for chess tutors uh, and teachers and our focus was using using chess to develop arithmetic skills so early algebra skills for children seven eight nine ten eleven years old um, and then i just shared a problems uh, a short a short problem solving activity um, because that is that's kind of where I'm coming from as a primary primary maths teacher. Um, my focus this year and last year has been to show how how chess and maths complement each other, and yeah, so that was really that was really great. So we had about thirty people in the seminar, so it was nice to it was nice to try something new. So there's been lots of new things happening this year, um, so it was good fun. Um, What's your view on this? idea about how you set up the chess classroom what things do you have to take into account as a teacher of chess 
So, well, so on on a Monday, I have an after school club. So I've got my chess sets from Chess and Bridge, Malcolm's shop. I I do teach. I do have a PowerPoint. So I've taken the chess in schools curriculum and turned that into PowerPoint lessons. So my resources are there. We have the chess boards, um, and we work through the great lessons from CSE. So for any primary school teacher, if you were to follow the curriculum, it's there ready for you to use. Uh, and it's really great to follow. And then we add mini games and there's, so, you know, there's mini games on different websites as well. That, so you don't just want to, you learn through mini games, but there's so many fun games out there um, that you can add to your lessons. And of course there's tournaments and all sorts of things. So that's a club. Lunch times is a bit trickier. So I have a little lunch club on a Wednesday and that's a group of eight children. And it's hard. It's hard during lunchtime because there's so much going on and they need to have their lunch. Sometimes other things are happening. So I do what I can with my little lunch club. Um, but then on a Friday, I'm at a school in Tottenham, St. Paul's and All Hallows. And that's brilliant. I'm teaching Chester Year 4, 5 and 6. And again, it's the same resources. So it's this, using the CSE curriculum the chess pieces um so I'm resourced but I know like I know Jade if you remember her from last year she got in touch with CSC they uh, they donated some chess sets and the school funded their own so there are ways around it and you will find most schools do have a chess set in every classroom hidden so if you collate them all together you can actually uh, get around the the resourcing issues Okay, so there's yeah. there's scope for chess to be spread across perhaps more classrooms than is the case at the moment. Yeah. Um, how are you coping with pushing children on towards competition? Oh, so I'm coming from the inclusive inclusive side. So my vision is just is to get more more primary school teachers involved, Christopher. But I don't push them into the tournament level so um i i've left that for the csc tutors um but i know we have if we have the delancy challenge so there are tournaments that i will tell parents about and if they want to they will put their children forward there's so much support there from csc that if you need access to that support um malcolm and his team are always there to help so i so i'm not so much on the tournament side um I'm more about the enjoyment of chess and and just trying to reach reach different teachers, different classrooms, and say, look, give it a go, have have a try, and then once you once you've hooked the children in, they are hooked, and sometimes it's just one lesson. That's all it takes. Um, so yeah, that's uh, my end, my background. Fantastic. So that, that sense of making it part of a wider problem solving curriculum is important for you. Yes, yeah, very, very much so, uh, Christopher, because I think uh, we, we're reaching a lot of schools, but there are so many more schools that we could tap into. So I feel like if you can, if you can persuade head teachers and teachers to look at the different benefits, which I know Natasha and Malcolm mentioned, but also to show them, um, you know, it develops problem solving and decision making and children are communicating their ideas um, and that's so important for our children now. I think now more than ever to connect across the the board in person as well, to concentrate, to focus, to learn that some things are not instant. You have to study for things and put effort into things um, and just value that time to connect with people. Um, so, 
I think that is there is a lot of interest, but it's it's really important if you if you can show off the problem solving and the decision making benefits of chess, we can reach more more schools, and it'd be lovely to reach more more primary school teachers with their workload. You know, I know it's not always easy to fit time in, but sometimes it could just be a small group. Um, but you know, it could be doing a demo. If you do a demo for a head teacher, just or I've done a few news articles and that's take grab, you know, got some interest. So it, it's about spreading the word. And I feel like the last few years because of COVID, because of lockdown learning, more people have been online tapping into chess. So that's been great. And then I don't, I'm, I don't know if Malcolm spoke about the chess festival. There's so many wonderful things that have happened um, that teachers and schools are, are kind of a bit more curious now. Uh, about chess so I think the maths is a nice way for me to kind of reach different schools um, and yeah acts get bring it to more children perfect I might put that point to Malcolm actually yes Malcolm do you get a sense that there's a developing momentum as a consequence of lockdown where perhaps children might spend more time on the internet playing chess yeah ch chess exploded in lockdown we we have a partnership with chesskid.com and every child in the program gets given access to chess kid where they can play and learn uh look at videos play children from all over the world and it's completely secure uh the children are totally anonymous and we also uh give out a couple of thousand free full subscriptions which are worth fifty thousand dollars $50,000, $50 each uh, a, a, a year to schools. And I, I think that after the both the Queen's Gambit and lockdown, I mean, there's just, just been a chess explosion in the UK. And I, I, should, uh, I do want to say, if I could just plug this point, that any school that doesn't have any chess sets, any state school, we are very happy to supply chess sets to get you going free of charge as well as our curriculum and training. So that that's how we'll that's how we'll spread it to more schools because the the very basics of our offering is free. Fantastic, that's certainly something that's important for our our listeners to hear. And if I just bring in Natasha, if we go back to one of the points that Malcolm was raising at the start of the show about one of his intentions being to get more girls involved in playing chess, mm -hmm. how has that worked for you in your context? I, well, that's where I think the whole class teaching is so essential. Um, as I said, um, my experience of chess clubs is that, sadly, there is still a kind of gender bias. Um, I recently, a school expressed an interest in a chess club, and uh, these were children who had not been taught by me this year group, and so parents were told about it, a letter went out. Uh, not a single girl signed up, which is really, really shocking in this day and age. Um, but this is one of the strengths of CSC, is that um, this gender bias uh, is just completely wiped aside when you have whole class teaching. When you are, instead of opening a chess club, uh, which tends to just attract, you know, sadly, it can sometimes still just attracts boys or children of a certain socioeconomic background. The thing about CSC is when we're doing uh, whole class teaching, you've got 30 children playing chess, um, and there is no difference between the girls and the boys. I have to say, I was really pleased to hear Malcolm's answer about our curriculum, and I wholeheartedly applaud the answer and agree. You asked him about what do we need to do differently? Uh, you know, was your curriculum designed in order, you know, what do you, 
I can't remember your exact words, but it was to yeah, the effect you that need you to need feel, to adapt it. Did in you some feel you needed to adapt for, for it? Girls. I think, and and I would passionately argue no. Um, now that may come into bearing perhaps later on at senior school, where you have you know already maybe uh, gender stereotyping and, and sort of profiling it has has become a little entrenched, and so you need to kind of counter that in some way. Um, but I think at primary school they they're just you know they they they're very open to just learning there's no they don't generally have so much preconceived ideas about this is for boys this is for girls if you come in at day one and on an equal level playing field where they're all learning at the same time um then that gender bias just isn't there um and i you know my own experiences um and in fact astonishingly one year one year i did have a, a, a gender imbalance of more girls than boys significantly so in a school I taught her and it was actually a really interesting kind of psychology experiment in a bizarre way um, because I found that the boys I had in the chess club dropped off and so it, I think when we have this idea about oh well girls just don't like chess or you know it tends to attract boys more and why is that what's different about girls I think my own personal opinion is that that opinion is really flawed because um, it's not that chess doesn't attract or interest girls. It's more just about if they walk into a classroom, I think as Malcolm referenced, and there are just all boys there, they will walk out. And, and, it, and I saw it with my own eyes the other way around which of course rarely happens um, and I don't know whether that's because you know they've, they've got a female chess teacher and it just happened that a bunch of them signed up and I, I just had an imbalance I had you know a lot more girls than boys that particular year and then the boys that were there just sort of dropped off you know throughout the year so it that was a very interesting eye-opening thing and if this was a chess club um, so yeah I think um Personally, I think that certainly at primary school level, there's no difference in, in the genders in terms of enjoying chess or their ability to participate. <clears throat> Thank you. That's a very thorough consideration of the, the challenge, I think, or the opportunity mm. that's available there to teachers of chess in schools. We're drawing very, very close to the end of the show. and I, I, This conversation could go on all night, but I've got to bring it to an end, I'm afraid. <laughs> so I wonder if before we finish... Natasha, you could just give us perhaps one piece of advice on what our listeners might do if they're looking to set up a chess education programme in their school. I well then wholeheartedly I would I would recommend go on our website look on the website of chess and schools and communities we we have a lot of information there as Malcolm's already said if you don't have sets in your schools we we passionately you know it's the mission statement we want to be able to bring chess to as many children as possible so um, I mean lockdown was actually an amazing thing um, it, of course it was really sad that so many children you know sort of lost out educationally or whatever but in terms of chess um, we had so much interest uh, from children and and CSC gave out um, they had a we did a special page chess at home um, on the CSC website which has links to all of our um worksheets and there are cahoots quizzes there. there there are so many resources on our website and if you do want to set up chess in your school then please do get in touch with us we'd be more than happy to help great thank you very much natasha and i'll go to 
Hari then. Hari, any thoughts on what you might add to that? Yeah, I'd love to add to that. I'll be very briefly just talking about role models and girls in chess. One point, my teenage daughter, uh, when I was questioning her about chess, she she felt it was really important that some of the teachers that teach her, if they invited her to chess, if it's somebody she has a relationship with and she looks up to, she's more likely to go. That's the first the first point. The second thing is um, I've really tried to have role models for my chess students. So um, a few months well, before Christmas, uh, Tatiana Flores, who's a chess journalist, um, she won a tournament for people with disabilities and I invite I I asked her to write a little bio and share her story and I shared that with my students and they were so amazed. Um, a month ago we had Jennifer Shahade, a uh, uh, American twice American champion, and I went. I had a book launch. She had a talk at the Trouble Club for for women, and we went to the Chess and Bridge shop with some of my my students and again children need to see role models they want to hear stories of people breaking barriers enjoying chess tournament level and just all the benefits that playing this game can you know can give so and and the final thing actually i'd like to say about um jade's project so jade is a full-time year six teacher she has an after school club and a little lunch club but something great that she did in her community in harlow um she could with uh, somebody, some people from the Muslim community, they wanted to do a project for the community, so they set up a small chess club for girl, for girls, and and their mothers and their female people in their family. And actually, it's grown, and now boys and also everybody is invited and they're welcome. But that's a great small project that has just made brought chess to more people's um, lives. So something like that has grown, and it's an open door, and it's made a difference. So. You know, I think all the little things that we do, and if you're a teacher who has a full-on workload, anything you do makes a difference. Um, so, yeah, I think. Brilliant, Harry. Thank yeah. you. So we've got good resources. We've got role models. We've got inclusivity. Malcolm, what else should our potential chess teachers be considering? Well, I would just echo what Natasha said. Go to chessinschools.co.uk and register your school under the Join Us option on the website to, to get all the free resources and the support of, of the charity. Bear in mind that you'll sometimes get children excelling at chess who don't excel at anything else, and you're potentially giving children uh, an, an opportunity that they'd never otherwise have, and it's an opportunity that every child in private school gets. So go for it. Okay, thank certainly. So it's, the opportunity is there. It's it's just for us to take it and make the most of it. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you very much indeed, Malcolm and Natasha and Harry for being part of the show tonight. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation. We have. Thank you. Wonderful. And as we come to the end of tonight's late show in which I hope you've learned something more about the potential of chess to develop the students in your classrooms and the role that chess can play in supporting holistic learning for all. If the work of Malcolm, Natasha and Harry have inspired you to give chess a chance, either this year or next, then see if you can find some space for chess in an already busy school week. The next move is yours. 
Thank you again to Malcolm Payne for such an engaging and persuasive account of what good chess teaching, coaching and mentoring might look like and for sharing a wealth of ideas about how any teacher might become a capable and confident teacher of chess. Thanks to everyone who has tuned in tonight and called and texted the show. Tabitha McIntosh is back with tomorrow's breakfast show at 7am when she'll be casting her eye over the topic of canons and nationalism. And I've heard that Lucy Newberger will be talking about food and nutrition in schools at 6pm on Thursday, while Toby and Ed are cooking up something on the bay leaves of education for their Wednesday Late Late Show at 10pm. As ever, if you're stuck in the classroom or on an internet-free commute at these times, you can always catch up on what you've missed by downloading the entire schedule at www.ttradio.org.uk. That's all from me for this month, so thank you for listening. Perhaps give chess a go wherever you are, and we will speak again once the exam season has begun. Thank you very much, and goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.